Today's New Testament reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. My name is Glenn Hoberg, and also serve as one of the pastors here. And Mike had mentioned at the beginning of the service, there are certain times during the year where um, this one church in three congregations expresses itself uh, together. And one of those times is Advent, where the pastors will move to the different congregations and preach. So Mike was preaching at Meridian Hill this morning. I had the privilege of preaching at Mosaic. And uh, as I was there, I thought to myself, you know, I had already had a sermon before I preached a sermon. Uh, meaning, as Russ began to just share the gospel, um, and uh, as he began to talk about the way the gospel interacts with our lives, our brokenness, and our world, I just felt filled up. Uh, I felt thankful to God. I felt thankful to this brother who uh, is dear to me, and I... Um, stand really in awe of God's ministry through him. So thank you for coming here with us, brother. I want to pray for you. Um, we know you're not used to staying up this late anymore because your service is in the morning, but you know, we know you can bring it together for that's us, right? right? That's right, that's right? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love for Russ. Thank you for his uh, faithful ministry as an elder in your church and as a minister. We praise you, God, for the church that you have started under his leadership and the way it's flourishing. And we thank you tonight that we can drink out of the overflow of the cup that you have filled him with. In Christ's name, amen. Good evening, family. It's good to be with y'all. Good to be with y'all. Y'all look well. It's been a joy already. I feel like the Lord has been crafting the service, the, the liturgy, the music, the prayers, uh, in the very direction that we're going to be heading tonight. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm expectant that the Lord will use his word in our lives this evening and will send us out of here with transformational realities at work in our hearts. A few years ago, uh, there was a documentary that came out, and it was entitled The Soundtrack for a revolution. And this documentary traces the history of the civil rights movement. But what's compelling about this documentary is that it traces the history of the civil rights movement through the music of the civil rights movement. The civil rights activists would sing songs. They would sing spirituals and hymns in the context of their, of their fight for justice. And it really was a soundtrack uh, to their movement. It, it was something that they did. They would sing when they were, when they were praying together for justice. It was, it was something that they did when they were laboring together in the fight. It was, 
It was something that they would do. They would sing songs as they suffered loss. They would sing songs as they were imprisoned. They would face terrorism. And they would still be able to sing these songs in the face of these threats and in the face of of death itself. Dr. King said that these freedom songs played a strong and vital role in the struggle. These songs, as he put it, gave the people new courage and a sense of unity. They kept alive a faith and a radiant hope in the future during the most trying hours. Dr. King called these songs the soul of the movement. But what I found most compelling about this documentary was that they didn't just show black and white clips of the old civil rights activists singing these songs. What they did is they had contemporary artists singing these songs with a new inflection. These contemporary artists were taking these songs from the past and they were singing them in a new arrangement for their day. They were putting it into their context for their struggle. John Legend, The Roots, Angie Stone, they gave a different kind of life to these these freedom songs. And in a similar way, Luke the Evangelist shares with us a freedom, a series of freedom songs, if you will, at the very beginning of his gospel. And you could, you could call these songs the soundtrack for a revolution. A, a revolution that God introduced into the world with the arrival of his son, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people are invited to take up these songs and to put them in a new inflection for our current day. We're invited to take up these songs as we pray for change. We're encouraged to take up these songs as we labor for justice. We're encouraged to take up these songs when terrorist threats are made against our city. We're encouraged to take up these songs even in the face of loss and death. These songs can inspire a new courage and a new unity among God's people because they're all about a living faith and a radiant hope that can carry us through the trying hours that we face. So today, we come to the first of these freedom songs, and it springs from the heart of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But what inspired this song from Mary? That's where we're going to take our two points for this evening. The inspiration for Mary's song comes in divine consideration and divine liberation. So those are the two points we're going to look at this evening as we consider our text, divine consideration and divine liberation. So let's look at our first point where we consider the divine consideration. Look at your neighbor and tell them divine consideration. Now, Mary's song gets at one of the most significant themes that we see woven through the arc of the Bible. Through the story of Scripture, we see this theme that develops, and Mary begins to pick it up in verse 48. Look at, look at what she says as she bursts into praise. Verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Better translations put it this way. He has had regard for the humble estate of his servant. Or he took notice of the humble estate 
of his servant. I like the way the message translation puts it. God took one good look at me and look what happened. The first thing that causes Mary's heart to leap with joy is that God noticed her. He noticed. She was a woman in a man's world, but God noticed her. She was a Jew in a Gentile's world, but God noticed her. She was poor in a rich man's world, but God noticed her. She was oppressed in a tyrant's world, but it didn't matter because God noticed her. His notice changes everything. And doesn't this get at something in our human longing? Doesn't it, doesn't it scratch at an itch that we have as human beings? It meets us in a place of deep longing. How much of our lives, how much of our mental bandwidth is spent in the direction of getting somebody to notice? Needing somebody to notice me. It begins at a very early age when the baby is crying because they got a dirty diaper or they want to eat. They need somebody to notice them. Then it moves on to the toddler with their picture scribbling and coloring outside the lines and building their little building blocks. And they say, look, mommy, because they want somebody to notice them. And then it, it moves on to the high school student who's trying to dress in the latest styles and trying to make sure they got their pants just right and they got their hair do right because they want somebody to notice them. And then when you move on and you graduate from college and you get a good job, you work and you work and you ply your creativity and you try to be a team player because you want your boss to notice you. And along the way, you hang out on the social scene and you try to make sure that you act right in the social scene because you want a special somebody to notice you. Fellas, if your lady says, do you notice anything different? You better figure it out quick. If she got that haircut, you better notice her. We got to notice. People dress up in tuxedos and ball gowns and eat rubber chicken when somebody is officially recognized. There is something very important deeply woven into our humanity that we need. We want to be noticed. We need it. One of the greatest sources of our heartache, in fact, is to feel like you're invisible, to feel like you go unnoticed by the people around you. People have committed suicide because they feel like they're invisible. People have really struggled with the difficulty of aging because they feel like they're becoming invisible. And I recently read a piece by an actress who decided that she wanted to try and take on character. She was playing a role as a homeless person. And so she decided that she, she wanted to try and get into character. And she decided to become homeless for one day, just one day. And this is what she said about her experience. When I passed people, they would intentionally look away. I passed an outdoor patio of a bustling coffee shop with well-dressed, laughing colleagues, young mothers, and laptop-laden college students. Not one look. Each step, I grew more surprised that not one person would look at me with concern, offer me something to eat, or a hot cup of coffee. I longed for connection, but not one person would connect with me in any way. I simply couldn't believe 
no one would acknowledge me in any way. Surely someone would stop to either say hello, hand me a dollar, or ask if I needed information on local shelters. That didn't happen. How quickly you begin to feel like a non-person, a waste of flesh. It is physically painful. Can it be that no one really cares? If I felt this bad in a few hours, I cannot begin to comprehend days, weeks, or years of this. Some of you here know what that feels like. Some of you here know what it feels like to experience being invisible. But Mary would have us know that God notices. God has regard for us. And the, and the reason why we need him to graciously look on our humble estate is because we have failed to lovingly look on him in his glorious estate. In all of our pride, we fail to notice him. In all of our selfishness, we fail to notice him. In all of our greed and the callousness of our hearts, we fail to notice him. But the good news is that God will never be outdone by our sin. He will never be outdone by our sin. And he has gone to great lengths in order to convince us of this gospel truth. He looked on Adam in his sin and he clothed him. He looked on Joseph in his imprisonment and he promoted him. He looked on Israel in their slavery and he freed them. He looked on Israel in their exile and he retrieved them. And at the greatest moment that led up to the climax of this whole story, the father would look on his son in glory and send him. That's what Advent is all about. And if you ever had any doubt that God has taken notice of you. Let those doubts break upon the foundation, the solid rock of the gospel. Because the father looks upon the perfect life of his son for your approval. The father looks upon the atoning death of his son for your acquittal. And he looks upon the empty tomb of his son for your renewal. God can look upon our humble estate he can look upon the humble estate of his servants because he's viewing us in light of the humble estate of his servant, Jesus Christ. That's the way in which he can look at us with such regard and affection. We are blessed in him and he has done great things for us. Through union with Christ, do you see? Mary's song becomes our song. Through faith in Christ, we can sing her song and we can own those realities for ourselves. There is a, a special role that Mary plays, but we play a significant role nonetheless. And we have God's regard no less than she did. But there's another inspirational motif that leads Mary to sing. And that leads us to our second point where we consider divine liberation. Look at your neighbor and tell them divine liberation. <clears throat> now, in order to appreciate the full force of Mary's song, you have to understand something of the context in which she sang this song. In the second century BC, the Jewish people fought courageously in order to maintain their cultural and religious heritage because there was another bigger, broader, more powerful culture 
that was trying to sweep in and wash over them. They were being pressured to assimilate, to give up on the faith of their fathers. They were being pressured. And so they took their stand and they fought. They dug in and they fought to maintain faithfulness to their culture and to their faith. And the fight cost them dearly, but they ended up winning a massive victory through the Maccabean leaders. And they rededicated the temple. That's where current-day Jews celebrate Hanukkah. They they rededicated the temple, and they enjoyed a brief period of independence. We really love freedom, don't we? We really appreciate independence. In fact, we're in one of those cities where, you know, we really get into the whole Americana thing, right? We love it. Freedom is great. And can you imagine, after fighting so hard to win freedom for your people, Just to be yourselves, to have a more oppressive power come sweeping in. Could you imagine all of our liberties being taken away? Could you imagine the infringement upon your very identity markers? This is what happened to the Jewish people when Rome came to power in 63 BC. This is is what happened. All of their hopes were dashed because in a few decades, Rome comes in. And they impose their heavy taxation. And there's religious persecution. There's all kind of different responses from the Jewish people. How should we respond to this? Should we dig in and should we go to war? Should we just capitulate? Should we make concessions? Or should we wait for Messiah to come? This was the tension in which they were living. They lived under this oppressive situation. And this is what makes the shift of verse 51 so stark. Would you look at this? Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In the context of political, socioeconomic and religious oppression, Mary announces a future vision of what life will be like when the king of kings, the Messiah, the king of Israel, comes in to establish a reign and a rule of justice. But what's interesting here is that she actually speaks of future events in the past tense. You notice that? Grammatically, she uses a past tense, like an accomplished fact kind of tense, because she is so certain that it's going to happen. She's speaking of future events as if it's a done deal. Yeah, she's living in oppressive circumstances, but she's convinced with a hope inexpressible that he's going to make it right. She's locked in on the certainty of what will come to pass when the Messiah comes. She knows, she anticipates, she has rock steady hope. And as a side note, one of the surest ways that the evil one comes after us is to try and dry up our hope. Because when your hope dries up, that's when you begin to devolve into cynicism and bitterness. 
That's when you begin to rot away in the inside. That's when you become robotic. If you're doing any good works, that's where you're disconnected from any kind of heart motivation. You check out. Evil one comes after our hope. But what we see in Mary is this rock-solid witness, this testimony, this hope in future injustice, in the certainty of God's reign and in God's rule. It's so tangible and real to her. And what we have to do is we have to be careful not to spiritualize this message. This is politically and socially revolutionary. It's revolutionary. Jesus turns everything upside down. And we need to keep two things in mind as we consider this text. Remember that the Gospel of Luke is the first book of two books. It goes on to the book of Acts. And this is where you need to see this connection, right? This is talking about all of the things that Messiah is going to do when he comes into his rule and reign. But what you have to understand is that the relationship between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is that the ministry of Jesus is continued through his church. The anticipation of that future kingdom fully realized, fully established, that anticipation comes in the local church in the church with a capital C around the world. And that's exactly what you see happening in the early church in the book of Acts. In fact, they had such a revolutionary ethic, the way they dignified people, the way they cared for the poor, the way they lifted people up, that they got the reputation for people who were, who were turning over the whole world. That's how their opponents said it. <coughs> Excuse me. They had this reputation. You see them coming before authorities in local regions and the way in which they expressed their faith and hope, the way in which they included all peoples, it caused an uprising. It caused a stir. But they had a global impact and effect. And this continued to be the way that things were when God's people saw themselves as continuing this ministry of Jesus in a holistic way, not just in a spiritualized, heavenly-minded, no earthly good kind of way, and it wasn't until Christendom set in that Christians lost that kind of impact in the world. Power can corrupt. And that, that had an effect on the church. But I think there's a beautiful change that's happening in our culture that's ripe with potential for us. As much as, as sometimes God's people want to feel like they're on the defensive God's people want to feel like, oh, what's, what's happening in culture, wringing our hands? We're actually finding ourselves back in a missionary context. Back in a context where it actually costs you to walk with Christ. Where it actually shows the reality of true faith. Rather than casual, I grew up with this, yeah, I'll sign off on it, kind of assent to the Christian faith. And that's why this book holds out such a powerful message to us. Because think about the first audience that was receiving the Gospel of Luke. It was the early church. And they received this as an invitation to participate in seeing this vision come to reality. They didn't sit back and say, well, the only thing we're going to be about is Bible study. They were engaged. They were engaged. The word and the gospel of Christ drove their social ethic. It drove their social involvement. It drove their participation in extending mercy it drove their, their inclusion of outsiders and outcasts. 
They made friendships on the margins and they included all different kinds of people. And it's in that way that they got the distinct name of being Christian. That, that language was the language of their opponents, those Christians. They're countercultural and they're cross-cultural. I despise them. That's what the culture said. But they didn't care. To know Christ, to know his liberation, was to participate in seeing others liberated. Not just spiritually, but physically, tangibly, in real life bondages. We love because he first loved us. Yes, but don't stop there. We show justice because, and we fight for justice because the justice of God against us was satisfied. We fight to liberate others because we have been liberated. We want to see the poor lifted up and discipled out of poverty. Not just given a handout to continue to fumble around in a broken situation. No, we want to see the poor raised up. Because we are the raised up poor. We want to see the, the disenfranchised empowered because we were the disenfranchised who were empowered. Do you see this? <coughs> Excuse me. This is the message of the Christian faith. If this, if this vision of the gospel becomes a little scary to you, you might be coming into the actual gospel. The gospel upsets our nice little satisfaction with the status quo. It always has, and it always will. It always will. It won't let us rest content as we see fellow image bearers being beaten down, not only by their own sin, but by being sinned against. We become a new kind of people. That's the message. If I could grab what I think is a beautiful picture of it, I think it's very similar to what happened in the Underground Railroad when slavery was still in effect. There were people who were able to get out of slavery, but in an astonishing act of self-giving and consideration of their fellow strugglers, they were willing to enter back into that dangerous context where they could be recaptured in order to see others set free. They weren't content to just enjoy their freedom by themselves. They wanted to see that liberation spread to those who were in bondage. That is, that humbles me. That humbles me to think about what it must be like to be so self-forgetful, to be so free of your own selfish concerns, to be so captivated by this vision of beauty, of what it would look like when that freedom goes broad. Ah, I want that for my life. Rather than playing it safe, we're playing for keeps. That's what this passage tells me. We're playing for keeps. This is for real. And with the final mention of God's promise to Abraham, in which blessing goes out to the whole world through his family, we're once again invited to participate. In this message, I, I know how easy it is for us to do the me and Jesus thing. I know how easy it is for us to focus on the personal spirituality thing. Or even to define community in comfortable ways. I know how easy that is. 
But the gospel's always pressing us and stretching us with this kind of ethic. There's a reason why Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard. Because he hung around gluttons and drunkards. He was around the kind of people who needed this liberty. And that's a beautiful thing. Because if that's where Jesus is found, where should we be found? God took one look at us. And look what happened. What might God do if we take one look at the people around us? What might he do? It'll cost us. It'll stretch us. It'll, it'll stretch us beyond our neat little categories. Because this is the new wineskin, the new wine of the kingdom that bursts the old wineskins. It's not going to fit into all of our pre-existing categories. But it's going to stretch us. And we have to honestly ask ourselves, if we have been caught up into a cultural captivity, are we, are we caught up? Are we being held back from wholehearted participation in the life of the kingdom? If you're looking for a way to start, what does it look like to start? I think you go back to the two points that we have for this evening. The two points that we have for this evening were divine consideration and divine liberation. And here's the deal. If God has taken notice of you, how might that reshape the way in which you take notice of others? That's a good start. Take notice of others. There should be no invisible people to the Christian. None. Nobody that we see through or look past because we recognize everyone as valuable and precious as an image bearer. Who may you be passing up? Who needs to be noticed? And look around you. Where do you see captives? Spiritual, yes, but physically speaking. That's why I love the work of organizations like IJM. That's why I love and appreciate the way in which nonprofits work in order to see people raised up out of bad situations and cycles of poverty. This is important kingdom work. And I think it may be a, a next step for us to begin to pray and ask God to help us see particular ways that we can participate in this story, particular ways in which we can begin to sing Mary's song, not, not just in our individual lives, but maybe in our, in our community groups. Maybe there's a groundswell and the next leg of growth and, and mission for Grace Downtown comes in living up into this vision in different ways. Who knows what God holds out for you? At the very least, I think these are two beginning points that we can begin to wrestle through in our own lives to begin to press this message into our own hearts. And we can also repent of all the ways in which we have seen through people and looked through people. Said, nah, they're not going to advance me. Ah, I can't really get anything from them. Ah, that's too messy. That's too involved. That's too... Ah. I'm going to go be around people who are easier to be around. And I think we can repent of any cowardice in our hearts that causes us to shy away from that hard work of participating in these important kingdom initiatives that are around us. But I think open, open up to consider what that might look like for you, for us, for our network. Let's ask God to help us.
to give us next steps. He says, if you lack wisdom, ask. And this requires that kind of wisdom. So let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that you noticed us, that you looked on us in love, that you considered our helpless estate, and now it is well with our souls. We're grateful, Lord, that you dignified our humanity by coming in the flesh, and all the more so when you were willing to lay down your life to see us made whole, to see us liberated, set free. God, we pray that you would help us to join in Mary's freedom song by revolting against the effects of the curse in this world with the hope of the gospel and the ethic of the kingdom. So God, would you give us the grace to walk in your ways, to be identified as your people by the way we love and the way we sacrifice and the way that we extend ourselves, by the way in which we enfold the outsider, by the way in which we labor for the sake and for the benefit of others. God, we, we need you to help us do this. Do this great work in us and strengthen us for this task as we come to the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.